I tried to go way out of my way to make absolutely clear in that essay and you know in everything else I say that I'm not a fan of Donald Trump or his foreign policy. But some of the questions that he's putting on the table do need to be dealt with. This is Thanasi Kambanis. Welcome to episode 19 of TCF's World Podcast. I'm joined by Paul Staniland, a political scientist at the University of Chicago, and we're going to be talking about liberal alternatives to Trump's foreign policy uh, and more broadly about the unfolding debate about the history of the international liberal order. Uh, Paul, thanks for joining me. It's uh, my pleasure to be here. Thank you. So you recently wrote a piece called Misreading the Liberal Order, Why We Need New Thinking in American Foreign Policy. Uh, and I want to start with the basics because it's actually a useful chance for all of us to get a little bit of a primer. And I think this is also the foundations of, uh, of the debate that's unfolding. Uh, just define for us what, what is uh, the international liberal order? Well, that I think is actually a really important question, and it's not one that I think there's an agreed upon answer to. So that was part of the motivation for my piece as I was reading articles that were talking about how Trump threatened the liberal order or the liberal international order. And it wasn't always clear what that meant exactly. Um, I think it is often used to refer to the promotion of international institutions, uh, the promotion of political liberalism, so democracy and human rights and some degree of economic openness. So for instance, free trade and international institutions that can facilitate kind of economic liberalism, liberalism as well as political liberalism. Um, the tricky thing though, is I think there's a lot of disagreement about what exactly any of those pillars of the liberal order mean. So like what counts as advancing political liberalism, for instance, but also there's disagreement about the extent of the liberal order. So was there a liberal order kind of is there now a liberal order around most of the globe? Is it confined to particular regions? How has it evolved over time? And so I think the idea of liberal order is a really interesting and important one, but it can be really fuzzy. Um, and so that was kind of one of the motivations. It's not clear we know exactly what this thing is, but it has something to do with economic liberalism, something to do with political liberalism, and something to do with international institutions, multilateral institutions. And this is something that uh, that became a lot more clear to people uh, or, or, or around which a lot more consensus emerged the second they felt it was under attack by uh, by Donald Trump. Uh, and I guess if, if we had had this conversation a few years ago, uh, uh, self-identified liberals might have been a lot more openly fractured about what they think the international liberal order is or whether they think we, we, we're, we're actually living uh, through one. Um, so, uh, I mean, one of the, the facets of this, the, the, the sort of debate within liberal circles that's, and, and, and I mean, I don't mean Democratic Party, I mean, cl you know, classic liberal uh, circles in, in the wake of Trump, uh, is uh, uh, whether we were enjoying some kind of consensus uh, international liberal order uh, before uh, before Trump came to office in the first place. Uh, and I want to hear your take on whether that sort of fuzzy, uh, fuzzy consensus of, of, of free trade, uh, grudging respect for international institutions and, and the UN, uh, and a sort of d default of, uh, of arbitrating international disputes through institutions, uh, although not a sort of uniform practice. W was that actually a, a thing, uh, the, a bipartisan uh, consensus uh, a set of values and practices in, in, in the foreign policy sphere? So I think there, there are different answers that one could give to that. So other people in this debate would offer a different answer than me. 
I think it's fair to say there was something like a liberal order kind of centered around the North Atlantic. So this overlap of NATO or partial overlap of NATO, the EU, the World Trade Organization, maybe you could throw the United Nations in there. Um, but I think, you know, you could argue that Western Europe into parts of Eastern Europe, you know, the North America had something like a liberal order. And then other parts of the world had parts of that. So East Asia, for instance, um, ends up with a lot of free trade and kind of economic liberalism, but without robust inter international institutions around security, for instance. Other parts of the world, I, I find it hard to find much of the liberal order, right? Um, so the Middle East, large parts of South Asia, historically, Africa, Latin America, at least my argument would be, sure, there are elements of something that we might think was a liberal order in these places. But a lot of the politics, including a lot of U.S. foreign policy, didn't really involve kind of these pillars of the order. So my intervention was to say, look, there, there may be and there may have been something like this that, that existed in some parts of the world in some historical periods. That's important. That's fine. But in a lot of the rest of the world, this just wasn't really how politics were structured. And it wasn't really what drove American foreign policy. And, and I mean, the reason why this matters is because if we're if we're figuring out uh, what America's posture should be in the world, uh, it's important to understand what what we what we were doing up until now and, and whether what we were doing really tracked uh, well with what we said we were doing. Uh, and, you know, one of what there, there seems to be a lot of, I mean, some sincere hand wringing some and some revisionism uh, around this question when we look at the post-war period. Um, and, and I guess we have to be careful not to get too, too esoteric in breaking down the different phases of the post-World War II order. Uh, but I think the, there's some really important uh, uh, core questions at the heart of this. And one, one is, uh, did America consistently use its power and strength to extend um, a security umbrella over big chunks of the world? Um, and did it use its influence to police uh, somewhat equitable economic rules around the rich world uh, in a way that wasn't solely about promoting America's short-term uh, self-interest? Because I think that's the core of what, you know, were was America doing something that was good for a wider uh, realm of stakeholders, or was it just pursuing its self-interest in a way that happened for a short period of time to coincide with some uh, nice, nice-seeming values? Right. I mean, I'm not the expert on the. I'm not an expert on the international economic side, so I'm gonna. I, I can say a few things about that, but I don't want to get out over my skis on that. I would say that in some parts of the world, the U.S. did extend a security umbrella that involved these pillars of the liberal order promoting democracy, institution building. In other parts of the world, there was an American security umbrella, but it was not a particularly pleasant one for a lot of people involved, right? So the US has been closely allied with the House of Saud in Saudi Arabia, for instance. That, you know, created a particular kind of order, or with the Shah before the late 1970s. Um, you know, in, in Southeast Asia and East Asia, there was close alignment with author often authoritarian leaders who were anti-communist. So, the U.S. had a big security footprint all around the world. The implications of that for actual liberalism or the liberal order, I think, varied dramatically. So rebuilding Japan as a democracy is good, um, you know, but being involved in very nasty or at least being complicit in really nasty human rights abuses committed by authoritarian allies, I think, is just is not compatible with this kind of hard version of the liberal order that some of its advocates seem to be putting out there, or at least at times seem to have been putting out there. Well, and and uh, and you I think you made a tangential comment about this in your essay, but I thought it was I thought it was very on point. Uh, uh, you said if I recall correctly that a lot of the 
uh, defenders of this supposedly great rosy history of, of the international liberal order uh, ignore long, crucial, sordid chapters like the war in Vietnam uh, or the war in Iraq uh, uh, when they when they talk about what supposedly came before Trump. Um, and and I, I want you to unpack that a little bit. And, and I mean, it's, you know, so to the extent that there was some kind of coherent uh, or consistent body of American uh, ways of being out in the world. Uh, what's a, what's the more uh, accurate way to understand it with its warts? If it's you know the the America that helped promote the the EU or or, or the Marshall Plan or the reconstruction of Japan, but also the America that helped promote a lot of uh, d d destructive, open-ended wars that that ended up not really helping any of uh, America's core interests. Right. I mean, I guess so. First, let me say I think there are three ways that advocates of the liberal order deal with some of the unpleasantness, let's put it that way. One is just not to talk about it. Another is to say mistakes were made, but usually that's maybe a paragraph in an article. It's to say, oh, of course, you know, there were mistakes, but basically things were good. A third is to try to de-link the liberal order from the bad stuff and to say, look, these were just different aims, different policies. We can't judge the liberal order by this other stuff because it wasn't linked to the liberal order. So those are kind of the three rhetorical moves I've seen. Um, I think the tricky thing there is, or at least the way I think about it, is there are very few policies that don't have trade-offs. And what I think kind of analysts of American foreign policy or of, you know, politics in general just need to have their eyes open about what some of the policies, you know, can have, how they can have two sides of, of a coin. So an interesting example is the U.S. is deeply involved in rebuilding Europe after World War II, which is great, right? But in order to do that, they need to get French cooperation. So what does that mean? Well, in the mid-1940s into the late 1940s, we end up helping the French kind of get their empire back together and help support the war in Indochina. Even though there are a lot of Americans, um, or at least some Americans, who are saying, you know, this seems like a really bad idea. But in order to kind of build the liberal order in the core, we end up helping to try to support the French empire on the periphery. So both of those things are true, that we did some really great things, but also linked to that were some things that I think are, are, are much more problematic. And I think to, to take seriously the history of American foreign relations, but especially America in the developing world, which is really much more my focus. I don't study NATO. I study South Asia, a little bit of the Middle East and Southeast Asia. We just need to, to keep in mind that there are these trade-offs. There is this complexity. And we can't just kind of write that out of history. And I mean, the, 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 okay, there's a, there's a left critique uh, that, you know, in my view, sometimes simplistically boils down uh, uh, a left foreign policy to being simply anti-war uh, rather than pro-war, but it, it raises it raises I think a useful uh, corrective question, which is, uh, it, you know, is it possible that these um, these sort of uh, institution building or crusading liberal values that undergirded uh, a lot of the post World War II emerging order, uh, in fact, do uh, lend themselves or, 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 or almost depend on imperialist projects or, or uh, you know, in a way, authoritarian bargains uh, in, in places on the periphery so that, may, so that maybe some of these dirty, uh, uh, dirty spots on the record are actually inseparable from, you know, from the context of, of, a, of a liberal policy. I'm, I'm wondering if that, if, if you see any substance to that. I think sometimes that's absolutely, I think that's that's true sometimes, right? I, I'm not going to say it's always true or it's never true. But, you know, an interesting example going back to Saudi Arabia is if you want a Europe that's growing fast, that's reconstructing, that's economically developing, you need you need oil, right? And well, where do you get oil from? You end up looking to the Middle East. 
right, and the Saudi regime and, and a variety of others. And so in some senses, there are certainly cases where these are inseparable. Now, that doesn't mean they're always inseparable and that whenever something good is happening in the kind of liberal order, we need to go find an equivalent evil that's occurring in the developing world. I think that's not the right analytical impulse. But when there is this connection, I think we just need to be open with ourselves about it, right? Um, and I think that can be difficult, right? Because it, it introduces a lot of complexity, both kind of moral and historical complexity. And it doesn't lend itself that easily to kind of big slogans. Defend the liberal order, for instance. Well, you know, the liberal order existed in some places at some times and not at others. And there were parts of it in some places. And there were some good, really good things about it. But also there were some dark sides and ambiguities. And that's just part of the history of, you know, American foreign policy. Um, but to, to make policy now, I think we need to have like a, a full spectrum understanding of what happened before and not a simple history of it. Let's put it that way. Right. And, 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 and Trumpism has in, in some ways uh, allowed people to, to elide, elide these issues. And, uh, you know, by calling into question the very ideas of international cooperation or of, uh, you know, of, of, of the utility of international regimes, I think it's given some it's at least opened the door to, for people to take a free pass of, of uh, dealing with these things in their in their full in their full complexity. Order from Ashes, New Foundations for Security in the Middle East is a multi-year TCF project supported by the Carnegie Corporation of New York. TCF experts are studying new ways to manage conflict and promote stability. You can order the book and read the reports on our website. Go to tcf.org and look for the Arab Regional Security page. This is uh, Thanasi Kambanis. I'm talking with Paul Staniland uh, from the University of Chicago. He's a political scientist who's uh, weighed in on the uh, emerging debate over the international liberal order and uh, what a better liberal foreign policy would look like. Uh, let's let's sort of shift our conversation a little bit towards um, uh, the the debate that's unfolding now and why uh, why all this matters looking forward as we try and come up with better uh, foreign policy ideas. Um, why is it so important to nail down this uh, historical question at, at this at this moment in time? And that's a really good question. I mean, I think. The way I've thought about this, and I'm not, I don't, I'm not a policymaker, I don't work at a think tank, I'll never be in the government, right? So I think my job is to kind of get the issues out there, right? Uh, I, I never think, say never. I, I'm pretty comfortable saying never, but, but you never know. Um, I think to make good strategy, you need to know what your choices are. And you need to know what choices have been made in the past and what worked and what didn't work, right? And so that means kind of looking at the full set of choices that were made and trying to weigh in some intellectually serious way, you know, what went well and what didn't. Right. Um, so an issue that, that comes to mind, just as an example, is the promotion of democracy and human rights. And so on the one hand, we want to promote those things. And there's both a left wing case for doing that and a right wing case for doing that. Though they're, they're different. You can make them. On the other hand, the history of, of American foreign policy shows enormous variation in, in how democratization and human rights are actually dealt with. Right. And so rather than saying we should always do this or never do this, I think it's important to say, well, okay, when did this, did promoting human rights and democracy have positive imp impact? When did it have negative impacts? When did it take a really long time but was worth it? 
when did it take a really long time and it didn't really work out and we just ended up kind of supporting authoritarian regimes that claimed they were getting better. So in order to make some kind of policy call about human rights and democratization, right, or about when to use military force abroad or the ups and downs of alliances, I think it's just important to know what has and hasn't worked in the past rather than ending up with slogans that say alliances are the best, we always need them, or, or alliances are always entangling and we'll get the U.S. in trouble wherever they are, right? Which would be kind of a, you know, a particular libertarian far right slash parts of the far left critique of alliances. Um, so I think it's, it's important to look at variation. That's how I think in terms of social sciences, like what happened, how did it vary, what can help us understand what led to better outcomes and worse outcomes. And in 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 the in the context of today, I mean, there, so there there's a, uh, I think there's a sort of resurgent, uh, isolationist view. That, I mean, this sort of, I mean, you just described it as as the the critique of all all alliances being entangling, and I think there's there's a claim now being put forward by some serious people or you know powerful people anyway uh, that uh, that the entire premise of of uh, uh, you know depending on other entities out in the world is 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 a bad uh, bad approach for the united states uh and and i guess the um the uh question about the historical record is is um one have we have we ever really uh embedded ourselves in these international regimes have we ever really subordinated ourselves to to an international uh, uh, regime or, 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 or arbitration, uh, or other entity. Um, and then if we have, or to the extent that we have, how has that worked out, uh, uh, for, for the U S um, and, uh, and I mean, the, the, the other piece of this that I think is interesting as a, as a policy analyst is, is that, um, uh, I, I get the impression that, uh, foreign policy experts are very uncomfortable uh, with with some of Trump's questions, and yet some of those questions are worth answering. I mean, you know, you, you, one can I think make a good case for NATO, but one ought to make the case rather than uh, require it to be an assumption that NATO is good. Um, you know, if these are strong, if these are strong ideas, there should be there should be strong arguments that one can muster uh, on, on their behalf. And I guess uh, it hasn't been a debate until until now for quite a long time. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. There is, there's been this kind of horrified reaction, and I am, I tried to go way out of my way to make absolutely clear in that essay and you know in everything else I say that I'm not a fan of Donald Trump or his foreign policy, but some of the questions that he's putting on the table do need to be dealt with, right? We're kind of sitting in this world where a lot of the institutions and a lot of the security arrangements the U.S. has built are legacies either of the Cold War or of kind of the 9/11 moment. And it's not obvious that all of those need to kind of continue in perpetuity. Now, I think plenty of them could be justified in strong terms, just like you said about NATO. I'm not one who would, you know, want to leave Europe. But, you know, if there are issues with NATO, they need to be addressed. And I think Trump's great skill, but also his incredible weakness, is he's able to raise these questions, right? But because he's the one doing it, the way he does it, and his clear kind of endless lies and bad faith make it really hard to have a conversation about it that doesn't end up either lending aid and support to Donald Trump or rejecting Donald Trump and all of his works, right? So it gets really tricky to kind of have some of these debates. Um, I mean, I think a really interesting one is trade. And I'm not a trade scholar, so I'm just going to kind of put it out there that there used to be big debates about the Washington consensus, about neoliberalism, about you know when is trade good or bad. And there's been a resurgence of a lot of that interest since the Trump election because of the effects of trade on you know parts of the American Rust Belt, for instance. 
But on the left, there doesn't seem to be the same fer- kind of ferment around trade that there was maybe 20 years ago, right? I remember the, the, the Battle of Seattle around the WTO. Um, so that's, you know, those are some of the issues where you'd want to see both resistance to what Trump is doing, but also a new conversation kind of within anti-Trump forces. And sometimes that latter conversation gets drowned out. And, and you're and you're overtly trying to be part of that conversation. I mean, that's the, what you say right at the end of, of this essay. And I mean, your essay comes at a time where I think up on my screen, I have like 10 or, or 15 essays by people who are to some extent internationalists who are you know debating what this should look like so uh, uh you end with that question like what should uh you know breaking breaking from what you call the intellectual inertia uh what should a, a good foreign policy look like um so let let's let's hear your thoughts about that conversation so what 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 should it look like yeah well so i'm not gonna like I don't have a perfectly worked out American foreign policy, but let me tell you what I think you'd want to have debates about, right? And I have views on any number of these things, but I think it's more useful to lay out kind of what we want to be arguing about. One is how important should human rights be in American foreign policy, right? So we're looking right now at the war in Yemen, links with Saudi Arabia, you know, this ambivalent alliance with Turkey, links to Myanmar, Thailand. Should human rights be a bigger issue or not in a non-Trump foreign policy, right? Democratization, similarly. How should democratization be pursued if we want to pursue democratization? What are the most important strategies, most effective strategies? What are things to avoid, right? International institutions, what makes them work well and what doesn't, right? So right now the EU, which, you know, generally I'm a fan of the EU, but it has major, major problems. How Could those have been avoided? If so, how, right? We're, similarly with how the UN works or the World Trade Organization. Um, something I'm not qualified to really discuss, but that's hugely important is the trade regime, both at home and abroad. How do we deal with globalization and its impact? Okay, uh, the use of military force. I think there's a lot of all good things go together thinking that you could see in the um, foreign policy kind of advocates for the liberal order, right? But sometimes you, you need to use military force in ways that undercut liberalism or that even undercut order, or at least sometimes you use military force in that way. Alliances we've talked about. And then something I just want to kind of throw in here is the national security state at home. How robust a security state do we want? And this links into questions about homeland security. Now, there are different answers you can give to all of those questions. But what I don't like is when everybody lumps them together and says, we can get all the good things we want. Often there are trade-offs across these, right? If you want you know, strong alliances, you may need to deprioritize human rights and democratization if we're talking about a country like Thailand or Vietnam or Pakistan, right? If you want to promote human rights, well, then maybe you're going to have to kind of downgrade some allies. Um, and so these are the kinds of trade-offs I think that need to be grappled with in a really kind of open way and, and not treated as things that can be easily solved as long as we get Donald Trump out of office. Because these issues are going to be with us even if Trump disappears tomorrow. Yeah, I mean, I th- actually, I think these issues have been uh, the Achilles heel of U.S. foreign policy for sure since since 9-11 and the the swelling of the national security state. Uh, and I and I think these are questions that liberals especially are, are have trouble grappling with openly. And, the, and uh, from that sort of list of important things you mentioned, a couple jump out at me as at the core uh, to me as as lying at the core of of the of the sort of paralysis. And uh, they are you know how how to get past the obsession with 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 zero tall uh, zero risk national security uh, and the huge security state, um, and how do you deal with uh, the need to use 
military force sometimes in international affairs without reducing it to a sort of simple, you know, anti anti war or uh, all war uh, 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 approach. Um, and I and I think liberals have a lot of trouble uh, with that because they want to, you know, they want to be anti war, but they want to be tough on terror. Uh, and they don't want to sound like they're, uh, you know, apologists for the European Union or for these international institutions that are some or the UN that are somehow viewed as being inimical to US interests rather than being understood as a platform uh, through which the US, like other powers can can pursue its its, its interests. Uh, and uh, do, do you see a, a new willingness to 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 take these kinds of questions head on among whether it's intellectuals or, or, or sort of policy uh, people directly involved in the policy process? I mean, I think it's been really interesting to see this debate develop. And it's suggestive that there's there's room out there to have these conversations. I think maybe some of the initial pushback on Trump took this fairly totalizing attitude, right? You read these foreign affairs articles about, you know, how the liberal order will survive and or, you know, why Trump threatens the liberal order. And you read them and think, like, this just doesn't this doesn't jive with at least my understanding of post-1945 history. And maybe once the initial shock of Trump wears off a little bit, and also, you know, non-Trump forces maybe take the House or maybe win the election in 2020, people are going to need to have these hard conversations, right? I mean, terrorism, I think, is this really important issue. What, how risk-tolerant or risk-acceptant are we? How involved in the Middle East do we need to be? If we're going to be involved in the Middle East, well, does that mean we need to get in bed with really nasty regimes that can do the things we want them to do? The rise of China, similarly, how are we going to build institutions? Do we need to build institutions in Asia? If we do, how do we do it? If we want to counterbalance China, how much tolerance for non-democratic allies or partners, like, for instance, Vietnam comes to mind, or Duterte in the Philippines, are we going to have? And so these are trade-offs that I think the world is going to force on us. And they're conversations that are going to have to happen regardless of whether Trump is in office or not. Obviously, they'll have a very different tenor depending on you know, whether he's still the president. But at a certain point, we, we have to have these conversations or else it's going to be kind of the same old, fairly platitudinous conversations again and again. What, um, what do you think is the uh, uh, sort of hardest, hardest of these to resolve? I mean, and, you know, when I when I again, when I look at this sort of laundry list, I think, okay, questions like human rights and democratization, at the end of the day, like almost no one in practice ever is willing to sacrifice a hard interest uh, in in favor of human rights or or democracy. Uh, But in, in a lot of, in a lot of cases, there's a, there's a much less, uh, I mean, there's a much harder kind of uh, trade-off to face, like, uh, you know, letting, uh, 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 ceding a sphere of influence to to Russia in the Middle East or uh, watching China extend, uh, you know, extend its economic and military power into parts of of, uh, Southeast Asia that had had hitherto been U.S. uh, areas. Um, And in those cases, it's uh, it's, again, a hard question because someone uh, someone can reasonably say, so what? You know, what, what do we really lose? What, what do we really need to be spending billions and taking risk in order to uh, assert ourselves there? Uh, how, do, how do we start to, to, to weigh those kinds of issues of change, changing the American footprint in the world? Yeah, I mean, I see four big, tricky dilemmas, right? And that's kind of the question I take from you. It's like, so what are the really big dilemmas we face? Um, I'll just mention the first two. They're not things I study much. But one is how to deal with the domestic 
political impacts of globalization, flows of people, flows of goods, right? Um, the second, we've talked about the national security state. And I, I don't have the answer to that, but it, I think we need to have that conversation as a country. You know, what, what kind of information about us do we want to be gathered by the state? And what can the state do with it? And then the two others, I think, right? One is dealing with the rise of China in a way that maintains some degree of American influence and prevents a Chinese hegemony in East Asia, right? Which has been a goal of American foreign policy, you know, for decades and decades, without getting entangled or caught in the escalatory spirals that could lead to a war that would be really, really bad for everybody involved, right? So I think that's a really hard question. And I think it's one that there's actually been some really interesting debate about whether the US got it wrong. There was this Ellie Ratner and Kurt Campbell piece in Foreign Affairs, and then some very thoughtful responses to it. Um, but that's, that's a huge dilemma. I think that's the fundamental dilemma of the next couple of decades is dealing with the rise of China. The second you already brought up is how do, what, what tolerance for risk do we have when it comes to terrorism? Because again, there's this trade-off. If you aren't paying enough attention, you could end up with politically incendiary and, and obviously you know, brutal and violent terrorist attacks. Too much involvement though we've seen can also have really perverse effects as well. And so trying to find some kind of rough balance of how much risk we're willing to take versus how much intervention we're willing to engage in these parts of the world that have an Al-Qaeda or ISIS presence, I think is another really big dilemma and a really important conversation. The tricky thing with that last one is nobody wants to be, to be soft on terrorism or to be the person on whose watch a terrorist attack occurs. So there's this domestic politics that makes the policy debate really kind of hard to resolve in a purely analytical way. The politics are very counterproductive on that question, absolutely. And uh, I, I think our experiences recently in, in Syria and Afghanistan especially show that w we actually really need extensive international cooperation uh, to police uh, uh, terrorism problems, uh, but then no one wants to share credit that way. So no one wants to say actually the most effective things we've done to manage this problem have been tedious, uh, cooperative uh, uh, strategies and tactics that have been set up with, you know, 20 other countries and multiple institutions. No one, you know, no one wants to talk about that. So they prefer to envision it uh, all being in the same uh, sort of rubric as the, 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 the killing of Osama bin Laden and the sort of heroic military uh, uh, or drone strike uh, uh, approach, um, and uh, and th that that I think that discrepancy sort of traps a lot of countries, not just the United States, in this in this security dilemma, uh, uh, which I, I don't really I don't really see an obvious way out of, but I don't see as as an effective long term solution either. Uh, well, so in 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 closing. Um, you know, given given this this uh, this, this nice public uh, uh, debate that's broken out, what do you what do you think is the next step in uh, to the extent it exists in, in international liberal uh, circles uh, to to tackle the questions that have that have been raised by by this uh, uh, by this back and forth over whether the liberal order was a fiction in the first place and to the extent that it wasn't what we should salvage from it. Right, I mean, so I don't think, I, I don't go as far as some of the other critics in saying this was all kind of a big fiction, right? I just think it was much more limited and much more ambiguous than some of its advocates suggest. I think the big next step is to define and kind of measure the liberal order. W what was this thing? Where was it? What good things occurred as a result of it and what didn't, right? And then let's look at the non-liberal order parts of the world and, and parts of US foreign policy or the places where the liberal order kind of unevenly penetrated. And what were the effective policies there from U U.S. 
the US perspective, but also from kind of a broader perspective as well. And what didn't work so well? So I think the first step, and I think maybe we're moving toward that, is a clear definition of what this thing is. So it stops becoming this kind of encompassing catch-all phrase for things we like that were good for America versus the things that weren't the liberal order, which were things that were we didn't like and or were bad for America. I think once we move past that kind of conflation, it'll be a lot easier to just have a, a much more serious conversation about particular policies, particular regions of the world, particular interpretations of history. So first, you've got to get the definition right, not in a consensus way, but in a, like a, a better way than it is now. And then I think it's possible to have this broader discussion moving forward. Well, uh, thanks so much for your time uh, talking to us today. And thanks very much for your contribution to this very important uh, conversation. Uh, hopefully the next time uh, we have you on this podcast, uh, we'll be able to start answering the question you asked in your essay, which is how to su most successfully move beyond the dangerous and material worldview of Donald Trump. Uh, this is Thanasi Kambanis. I'm talking with uh, Paul Staniland, a political scientist at the University of Chicago. Uh, you can read his essay on uh, misreading the liberal order, why we need new thinking on American foreign policy on lawfareblog.com. Uh, and you can also see a lot of the articles that uh, we were referencing in our conversation today on the Foreign Affairs uh, website. Uh, thanks for joining us today and uh, see you on the next episode of TCF World. TCF World has been brought to you by the Century Foundation, a progressive public policy think tank that seeks to foster opportunity, reduce inequality, and promote security at home and abroad. For more information about the work that TCF does, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook.